Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Another day. I hope everybody got through the uh, dark anniversary of our country yesterday, September 11th, uh, grieving people still from that. And I hope uh, I hope you're okay today. Um, I hope you're okay in general, to be honest with you. We got some rain in Los Angeles, which is so fucking rare and so weird and so welcome. Like, I lost my mind. I was hoping for a deluge. I was hoping for the, the type of rain where, where homes slide down mountains, where where roads get washed away. I, I needed a biblical rain for L.A. I needed, I needed the soil to be wet for weeks. But instead, it seems that the sky is uh, it's not quite sure how to to create rain anymore it, it's like oh you look at the sky here and it's it's sort of like do those clouds know what they're doing have they lost their ability to do what they're supposed to do it's a very strange thing uh what's happening in the atmosphere but we did get some rain and it was uh it was amazing and i got somebody reached out to me because i've been sort of rambling on apocalyptically uh about water and somebody got got back to me somebody with some experience i'll share that with you in a second i would like to say that i will be at largo here in la tomorrow night playing some music with the fellas and also doing some comedy and i'll have uh hannah einbinder there uh doing some comedy as well and dan telfer will be there and me and the the band gonna do some of my simple three chord covers maybe four chords occasionally a fifth chord comes in and I also wanted to announce, if you haven't noticed already, that uh, I I oiled my boom. I oiled my boom. That's not code. I oiled my boom. Can you hear any squeaking? You can't because I'm, I'm moving around. I'm moving the mic around. No squeaking. Went, bought some WD-40, squirted the proper places. No squeakies. Yeah, you're welcome, those of you who are hung up on that. Today on the show... I talked to this guy, Brett Morgan. Okay, so he's a, a documentary filmmaker. He uh, he made The the Kid Stays in the Picture years ago. Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, he made that as well. Jane, the Jane Goodall documentary. 
He also made doc called June 17th, 1994, which was part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. And he just directed a doc about David Bowie called Moon Age Daydream, which I saw. But this guy and I go back. I couldn't quite remember the exact details. After he had directed, the kid stays in the picture, uh, I think in the buzz aftermath of that, he was signed on to do a show for Comedy Central. And he clears up for me what it was and what the situation was. Uh, and I remember, you know, that he, he had a certain swagger to him. He still does. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. I went, I've watched many of these things. I think I've seen everything he's made, actually. And I believe that the documentary that he did for ESPN called June 17th, 1994 is one of the great documentary films. Uh, it was kind of a brilliant conceit uh, given the assignment. I will talk to him about that. I'll talk to him about this David Bowie movie, which is a bit challenging and a bit interesting. It's a long piece of work, and uh, it's it's all footage of Bowie uh, talking. It's all it, most of it is, I believe, his words. There's other things in it. There's a lot of montages of things he's done, bits and pieces. There's bits and pieces of things that moved him to do things. And it's interesting the choices this guy made because, you know, it took me a while to realize and to learn that documentary filmmaking is not journalism. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a director's genre. It's, it, you know, you, the director has a point of view and presents whatever he wants to present out of the facts that, he, you know, he's pulling from. There's a broad context, it, 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 and it's interesting what any director will sort of provoke in you with the way he's put together the facts uh, or his interpretation of the facts. And it was challenging a little bit, the the Bowie movie. It was pretty spectacular. The family was on board. The estate was on board, so they, they got to use music. I think it's going to be some sort of uh, big uh, IMAX experience, which is great. Bowie's great. But... Ultimately, it did make me look at Bowie in a different way, for better and for worse. Humanizing is a, is a you know, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> you know, when somebody is mythic or amazing or, or even charismatic, uh, once they become humanized, you, you have to reckon with that. You have to reckon with the realization that these people are, are mortal. They're just people. I mean, I do that. It happens to me all the time here. But obviously, I didn't have the opportunity to talk to David Bowie, so it's a it, it was it's quite an undertaking. It was good talking to uh, to Brett about it. So here's what's happening here: the rain came and created this humidity. Look, I I hope for for happy endings, but they're not real. And I've been very apocalyptic about the water situation. I've been apocalyptic about almost everything. Uh, it, you know, po politics. The, the drug problem, the water situation. I think about it all the fucking time. But I had to sort of try to understand what exactly I was thinking about. Like what, there, there's an entitlement to it where, you know, I've lived in this house for a few years. My old house didn't have much of a lawn, but this house, you know, came with this beautiful landscaped situation. And I'm being, there's a selfishness to it, sort of like, well, I, I don't want to watch this die. I mean, I don't want to get depressed and watch it die. I, I don't want to, you know, necessarily rip it all out, but that's probably going to be the right thing to do. But, but it's not, 
it's somewhere in my mind, it's like, why is the environment fucking us like this right when things were getting okay for me and the house and this and that? Why does the world have to end at this inconvenient time for me when I'm just starting to feel okay about myself in my life for the first time? So this guy reaches out. Subject line, CA water situation from an expert. All right, great. Hi, Mark, big fan. I also happen to be a civil engineer with 20 years experience working directly for the California Department of Water Resources, Metropolitan Water District, LA, DWP, U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, the agencies and utilities that oversee LA's water supply. This guy's on the inside. He's going to lay it out for me. I heard you discussing this topic on your latest episode, and I thought I would send this email to you while I moved to Tucson last year after 20 years in Los Angeles. We're in the same situation with water, and I continue to work on water projects all over the Southwest. All right, we're going to get some truth. Is there enough water for LA? Yes, but with serious changes needed. Okay, Southern California will have to stop using water to irrigate landscaping. Wow, okay. Kind of knew that. I see no way around that very soon. Say goodbye to the green grass and lush landscaping of Los Angeles. Southern California will soon look like Arizona. And this is not this is not apocalyptic craziness. He's saying because it was a desert to begin with. If and when that happens, in addition to a few other feasible water supply and conservation projects, there would will be plenty of consumable water well beyond our lifetimes. Will you get a message from Gavin? Yes, but it will be to stop watering your lawn and plants. Not a message to only water a few days a week, but a message that doing so will have serious consequences. I foresee in the next few years, each house, business in Southern California will have a water limiter installed based on livable space square footage. You will get an adequate monthly water allowance. Exceeding will either result in heavy fines or shut off. That will be the main dystopian change. Okay, so then he says, the main thing to worry about, as always, the people that don't care about the situation and those that peddle fear instead of solutions. Now, I I think that's, he was speaking to me. I'm going to take that personally. Sleep a little easier knowing there are plenty of smart people like myself, hopefully, that are working on sound science-based solutions. Scott. Okay, so here it is. Everything's going to be fine. You just have to... uh, Dig up your yards, dig up your current sprinkler situation, and uh, get rid of all of that, and just sort of welcome back the desert. If you've been to Phoenix or Tucson or Utah, uh, that's where LA's going. Just uh, another desert town with the heat beaten down. No more yards, no more trees. I guess maybe the palm trees will be all right. Probably more cacti. And uh, there might be a little inconvenience in that you'll have some sort of giant gauge valve on your property that will allocate a specific amount of water to you and yours. And if uh, if you don't honor what it says, you'll be fined or have to learn to live without water. So that's comforting. Just uh, get ready for the desert and get ready for your the big uh, the big gauge out in the yard. Thank you, Scott. It's sobering, but I appreciate being sort of uh, educated. So that said, um, 
The rain came, but not enough rain. So look, Brett Morgan, I kind of, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I went at him a little bit because I, I thought he could take it and I thought we would have that kind of conversation because I kind of remember meeting him before. Uh, Moon Age Daydream, his new documentary, opens in theaters this Friday, September 16th, including in large format IMAX theaters, which is how I would see it if you can. And this is me talking to Brett Morgan. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. You see, I was just talking about that with my uh, producer about these uh, sanctioned docs that that are pretty common in music. Mm. And, you know, I've watched the ZZ Top one. Mm. I watched uh, the Leonard Skinner one. Mm. And I watched the Clapton one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one, it, you know, that almost was, I mean, Clapton's was the best out of all of the sanctioned docs because he sort of owns his own ship. But the other ones are just, com- it's like, it's it, it's just a commercial or something, or it's a racing of time, revision. It's marketing tool. What would, yeah, that's all, yeah. When Mick hired me to do um, Crossfire Hurricane, it was uh, 2011, and he said he wanted to do something for the 50th anniversary, but... What he didn't tell me was they were planning to tour in November of that yeah. year. Um, and so ultimately I was making a promotional product. I just didn't know. Uh, you know, it makes sense because they're, you know, they're basically marketing tools, advertisements for the product, the band. Yeah. I've been very lucky on, on Montage of Heck and on Moon Age Daydream, the executors gave me Final Cut. And... Um, you know, that's a huge risk because you're putting the whole brand, if you think of it as a brand. Right. Um, well, they do. Certainly, um, uh, Duncan does. You know, I, I did a movie about Bowie that he wouldn't sign off on. It was I had nothing to do with the movie. I just played a, 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 an A&R guy. But, uh, and I've talked to Duncan before, but they're very protective of that estate. Yeah, they get, you know, in my situation with Moon Age... It was the opposite, where once I acquired the rights, the executor said, David's not here to approve the film. Right. It's never going to be David Bowie on David Bowie. It needs to be Brett Morgan on David Bowie, and you need to embrace that. So from the very beginning, it was uh, one artist's interpretation of another, and with no strings attached um, and full access to anything in the, the, the archive. Cobain's executor, David Burns, gave me the same um, 
permission. And I remember when David, when I f- had the first cut, I called him up and I said, uh, I- I'm ready to show you the film. And he said, am I going to like it? And I was like, well, you're not going to sell any T-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it depends on what you're, you know, you're looking for. But I think in both cases, they were looking for something authentic. Right. And they rolled the dice, you know, that, that it would work out okay. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and also, I mean, they're, those two documentaries are, which you did both of, are very different approaches to that type of film. You know, I mean, they're they're different. I could see the seeds of what realizing the Bowie doc became in the Cobain doc. I have tried to make each film in my career like a theme park ride of the subject. Sure. So they're not really documentaries that are Cobain probably more so than the other ones. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're all designed to kind of personify the subject. They're meant to be the active experiences. So Bowie is not a film about David Bowie. It's film. It's a film that's designed to sort of be Bowie. It's, it's, it's the experience of Bowie. Um, from your point of view, uh, clearly, yeah, yeah. That, well, it's interesting yeah. about that. But wait, before we get embark on the full Well, it would have been interesting if I did it from your point of view. Sure. Or, I mean, there is no way. I mean, obviously, yeah, your point of view. But but there's no, you know, I had this conversation with uh, Barbara Coppola, you know, about the, the notion of journalism when, yeah. when it comes to documentary. And she was like, that doesn't exist. And that's not our responsibility. Yeah, I'm not a journalist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, it was my misconception at the time, where just because I, I don't know what's wrong with my old timey head, that yeah. you know, somehow or another, there was some, it, there was some, uh, that was the motivating force. But I, I know that's not true, because we're raised in a generation that trusted Walter Cronkite, and right? Trusted the newspapers, and documentarians were extension of that. So right. uh, that's when why. we were coming growing up, documentarians were journalists. That's all that. For the most part, I mean, there were exceptions, but that was generally how it was thought. And I think I've been doing this for like 25 years and it's definitely still a part of the, I think it's still, there's still an onus. It's still an onus that when people are going to a nonfiction film that it's, it's somehow fact-based, information-based. But but even, but sure. But like now, you know, given... You know, even the work of, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a, a, a nature of, even when I talk, talk to my uh, producer about studying photography, that they, you know, in order to establish photography as an art form, they had to break it into two schools of thought, which were documentarians and artists. And, and I guess also with, with film, I mean, you know, when you look at using reality or, mm. or pieces of it, you deal with movies like, I would say, a, a source for some of the stuff that you were doing is even like Koyaanisqatsi or some of those movies mm-hmm. where you do have a montage with layers of music that you know is up to you. We have bits and pieces of found footage or, or footage of this or that to make uh, a point. But I think you know when you look at the Cobain doc, you know that's sort of more traditional. Doing in that doc a fairly straight up, you know talk to the friends kind of doc yeah that's true yeah, yeah. but uh, before we get into it though like i i saw doug herzog at that at the screening last night and and i asked him because like w- do, didn't we do a thing for com was it for comedy central we did a pilot um in 2003 i yeah, want to say right for comedy central called confessing it right with, based on eating it yes with right. Patton oswell um 
Patrice O'Neill. I mean, there's an amazing cast. Bob and Schimmel, too, right? Bob Schimmel. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Moon Unit Zappa was on it. Um, Me? You were on it? Yeah. But yeah. I, all I remember is a couch. You were on a couch, yeah, on a set that I, yeah, on a, at Sony Studios in uh, New York. Yeah. Yeah. And but the the premise was you know tell the story and you were going to do that the magic uh, animation thing right yeah I didn't want to animate it that's why I never got pushed forward I thought the stories were so good that they didn't need to be animated and then they oh then they didn't want it no see I I get there the, the was the. <laughs> The, the Comedy Central wanted it to be uh, your story is animated and we drift off in the animation, but I couldn't take my eyes off the storytellers. Right, sure. I, sure. I did, and, I, and I didn't see there was any reason to do that. Yeah. And I thought it would be really kind of shitty and gimmicky. So, yeah. so it didn't get... So that was it. That was that was it. So, the, so the, yeah, I remember that. I remember I remember the stage. I remember Big Red Couch. Yep. And uh, and I remember seeing Schimmel, and I remember people around. There was no audience, so no. There was an audience. We did one day without an audience, and then we brought an audience in, and I flipped the script. So I had you on a white psych, and then I flipped it to like, um, to uh, I had another setup that looked like kind of that was designed like Lenny. The oh, oh like a nightclub? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, but that was right on the... What was that? That was you coming out of the success of the kids, the kids stays in the picture. picture. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which employed the uh, the sort of like uh, the the exciting zooming into still photographs and three dimensionalizing them. Yeah, photo animation. Yeah, photo animation. Yeah. That was the that was the big thing. And, and basically, that doc, because of the weird, almost underground um, popularity of the audiobook, yeah. Yeah, which was being passed around. It was just, yeah. I remember it was on tape and it, it, it was something that you could buy, but people were passing it around like, you know, you can't get this shit. You know, it was like two or three, three maybe three or four cassettes yeah. of him talking. Yeah. And it was like, it was like, uh, the, uh, it was like Satan. He was like Satan talking. <laughs> it was like, I mean, it was just like listening to like, just a, just a devil that had the time of his life. <laughs> Pat, have you heard Patton's impersonation? Of yeah, I remember Bob, him yeah. doing it back in the day. He yeah. did a bit on it. No. it was, he did okay. Uh, Bob, uh, but that film, speaking of what we were talking about, what yeah. we were speaking with earlier, the first line of that film is there are three sides to every story. Yeah. Your side, my side, and the truth. Known as lying, um, memories serve each differently or something. Yeah. That was, for me, a massive political bomb onto the documentary this idea of documentary as truth right right that was my kind of tna like so, there is no objectivity so the only truth can be subjective so embrace that wrap yourself around that and you're at least achieving possibly you know a not an objective truth but a a i think a something that's more truthful to bob to revealing the character that's being and that, and that was something he said in his book yeah and yeah. that was that the reason that you said like was that what I, made you say i'm doing this guy no i wanted to do bob because i wanted to make a com a documentary comedy and it's really hard when you're making a documentary unless you're doing it on a comedian to to create you know think about it. like in the history of documentary there's like hands on a hard body uh -huh. american movie yeah i mean there's a real handful of like 
comedies. Um, yeah, and I'm not even sure American movie you know set out to be that. <laughs> but it's really funny. Oh no, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's great. But like you know, ultimately, it's it's rooted in a profound sadness and delusion <laughs> most comedy usually <laughs> yes. is yeah, true true the sadness being the point of view of the person and the delusion to think that they can make it as a comic but uh okay so i do remember you you did you did use that footage of him playing a, a lunatic yeah of his you know brief acting career yeah yeah to to pretty good uh uh use yeah that was uh that was uh, and the the photos in that were we sold that film um, before we made it to Focus Features, the company that became Focus Features. So yeah. it was a documentary that was designed to go into movie theaters. And so we felt we had to do something different, not just talking head and what have you. And Bob's, and also going back to the subjectivity, the idea of of creating the, the distorted photographs yeah. were intended on one level to constantly remind the viewer that this is a dis subjective interpretation. This is a, you know, Bob's a, it's sort of a distorted truth, if you will. Well, that's and sort so, of like that old French new wave trick of, you know, you're watching a movie. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a Brecht, I mean, it was a Brechtian technique to pull yeah. you out of it. And yet at the same time, yeah. it serves to be seductive and sublime. So, so it's seducing you. It draws at the, you in. It draws you in, yeah. So, right. Well, I mean, I, it had a profound impact. But like, but already... So where do you come out of? I mean, you know, what was to be the beginning of it? Because, you know, clearly with this Bowie movie, you know, you've 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 launched into some other thing that, you know, in in this in the sense that, you know, you, you ultimately my feelings about Bowie probably shifted watching it, uh, probably not for the better. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, and but it seems to me, though, in talking about subjectivity, what you were doing with this subject was was moving through ideas about time, art, mm. death, your work, mm. love, life, you, you know, and, and honesty. Like there were you know, through a guy like Bowie who talked the way he did about things and also presented the way he did and evolved and changed the way he did. It was it was almost a, a, an amazing palette for you as somebody to explore these ideas uh there's i'm one of possibly the best canvas right ever yeah so yeah. like to me it's a transition into you know something that is uh I, I guess it still falls within documentary but this is you know a big movie about big ideas and it's you know specifically uh, an art film really uh, is that wrong well let me, call let's, it that? yeah yes and no I mean, do we consider Bowie's music art music or pop music? And I think that what Bowie did is he created art music that also has pop music. Sure. Like anything he created in the Berlin period yeah. is straight up avant-garde experimental well, music. And his construction, how he arrived there and the techniques he employed can only be considered art if you will, art or... Well, it's interesting yeah. because, yeah, right. Okay, so you so, focused on that. You're so, conscious of it. So, so, I, yeah. so I had a conversation um, early on after I got the keys to the to the archive and I flew back to New York and um, I, I sat down with Bill Zisplat, who's David's um, executor, yeah. was his manager for years. And uh, I said, Bill, and Bohemian Rhapsody had come out. And I saw Bohemian Rhapsody 14 times the first 15 days. The biopic? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I saw the sound in the movie theater. Yeah. So the, 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 it, was, it was fascinated by the mix. And, um, and I realized, 
I, and you know, like Rocket Man was coming, and it was like, I was like, look, we can approach this. There's a way to make this film that is incredibly accessible, like a jukebox musical. You turn your brain off. You just sing the songs. We walk the audience through the A through Z of Bowie's career, make it very digestible and straightforward, and we'll probably gross um, a significant number yeah. for a nonfiction film. Sure. Or we design and package it like Bowie, which is um, which is a little more challenging, a little more engagement, um, um, but a little more experimental. And Bill looked at me and was like, "Well, that's your problem." Yeah. And what I what I, I, I can't imagine that they're really concerned about making money, right? So, <laughs> what I realized in that shortly thereafter yeah. was the way to make the most pop or accessible David Bowie film. If we believe that David Bowie's music is can be pop or accessible, uh-huh. is to sort of mirror Bowie, and and so the. Bohemian Rhapsody version for Bowie is hopefully Moon Age Daydream, which is you, well. That's you, interesting, you know. Which is it? A Bowie film cannot be, should not be um, A through Z Wikipedia. That doesn't get you or, or, anywhere. Or Bowie being played by anybody. <laughs> well, you you had that. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, I, I saw that happen yeah. right in front of me. It's yeah. difficult, you know. Yeah. And but you know, oddly. You know, Johnny Flynn did not do a bad job. No, no, you, no. you know, like it's it, Bowie is ridiculous. Yeah, and 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 certainly at that point in his career, it was almost embarrassing. And like I didn't really know that. Hmm. You know, when I started doing that movie, hmm. I thought like, hey, look, nothing's gonna, no shit's gonna fall on me. <laughs> He's the guy, right? But when I looked at what he was drawing from research wise, it it's ridiculous Hmm. and even watching your movie like look i i stopped with him but with bowie probably at scary monsters and that came out in high school Mm -hmm. and i might have when i was in high school Mm -hmm. and that might have you know and i might have checked back in around let's dance and i did see him at foxborough Mm -hmm. uh you know uh stadium Mm -hmm. on the let's dance tour but i you know i was so far away it didn't have an impact but you know, when I was a kid, I was in it, you know, and I and I had tutelage from uh, an avant-garde musician in the town I grew up in, you know, in terms of you know what Eno meant, what you know what Hassel meant, what Fred Frith meant, what that world meant, and the residence and this and that, you know, in coming into what became that Berlin period and understanding some of that. But ultimately, like I'm still thinking. I just saw the film last night, your movie, and and what it's doing in my brain around Bowie as an artist is surprising to me. People who know things like, if you know, if you have your own, you know a little bit about Bowie, oh, a lot about Bowie. Well, no, I, uh, probably oh, middle, middle. Okay, yeah. you bring that to the film, sure, and you fill in the blanks. Yeah. Ultimately, what happens in the movie for me is that, you know, this guy. You, and it happened a bit with the Cobain one too. Is that you know whatever you're doing that you know you're in the way that you humanize these guys. What you're up against is you know the myth versus you know this sort of weird fragile egos that they are, and also the the sort of half baked people that they are. Mm-hmm. Like you you know with Cobain, it's very hard even in the shadow of the music and whatever the fuck his life is, not to think that guy was kind of a dick mm-hmm. who did not take mm-hmm. responsibility for his personal issues mm-hmm. and hurt a lot of people because of it. Mm-hmm. 
And with Bowie, you know, it's hard not to watch it and go like, holy shit, this guy was really a shattered kind of like mm-hmm. nebulous person that probably couldn't function at all uh, if he didn't have music. That, you know, when by the time he leaves L.A. for Berlin, mm-hmm. it seems to me from all the footage, and you can put it together yourself if you're a fan by watching that stuff, is that he must have almost killed himself. Mm-hmm. You know, through exhaustion, overwork, mm-hmm. drugs, whatever the fuck it was, by the time he gets to Berlin, he he had to have almost died, mm-hmm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. Does that does that track is for it, you? I think it's uh, 85 pounds when he... Right. Left. Yeah. So, you know, by the time he gets to Berlin, he's got no choice but to regroup somehow and to approach it honestly and, and take that risk of sort of like, well, if I'm an artist, we're going to have to figure this out because whatever that clown show I've been doing... For, for however many mm-hmm. records, you know, is not is not who I am, and I can't continue it because it almost killed me. So then he aligns himself and collaborates, and 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 really, you know, gets his hand on the pulse of stuff. He, I think he's a very good uh, intuitive cipher of of stuff. Mm-hmm. But but it seemed to me that seeing him talking in those pieces of footage about Berlin was about as as honest as as I I ever imagined him capable of being. My take on Bowie from the interviews, which is how I was able to access him, was for the most part that he was incredibly present Mm -hmm. and not chilling, sometimes deflecting. You know, not wanting to get, but personal. no matter what, in any in any manifestation, he was you know pre- present because he liked to be jarring too. This was my single greatest takeaway of David. Yeah, was that he viewed each moment as an opportunity for an exchange, uh-huh. um, for growth. Yeah, um, and where really was illuminated was in the eighties when he started. Um, you know, there was a shift between his interviews with rock journalists in the 70s yeah. who, were, who were pretty knowledgeable and knew his reference points. And then he gets into the mid to late 80s and suddenly he's being in- interviewed by Entertainment Tonight. And and the I would see the pre-roll, you know, before the cameras are rolling and David is engaging with them. And he never condescended. He never looked down. He He would talk to them about books he just read and trying to share stuff and it was like i was kind of in awe i was like why is he even talking to this person they haven't done their work i I don't and um and that's where i just kind of honed in that it was like every moment he made every moment mattered and it was most illuminated by seeing him with these really dodgy reporters and seeing how um he was there but he would when you the when he was touring Berlin, I, the character, people like to refer to characters with David. Yeah. I, in the movie, I don't talk about characters yeah. other than Ziggy. Um, someone asked me the other day what my favorite character was, and I said, well, I don't know if this is an official character, but I like the professor. The professor was the character, if you will, when he was promoting heroes um, in the mid-70s, who was a great intellect who loved talking about chaos and fragmentation right. and Nietzsche and right. and the, everyone you know and Einstein and Freud breaking down the 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 fabrics of our and like he got off and this is why yeah. he's trying to sell <laughs> yeah. heroes right. and he said something there probably more poignantly than he did later at other points in his life but he talks about being a sort of cultural anthropologist and putting a time stamp yeah. on the moment. He's right. not a futurist. Right. And what, what what I started to recognize was that Bowie 
and again it's I think people tend to think he's a futurist like there's this interview where he's talking about the internet that gets like put on social media every three weeks right he wasn't a, a futurist. He was like a great artist, more sensitive to what was happening now. The yeah. rest of us just took a little longer to process it. I understand what you're saying. And I guess going back to what I'm saying is that like it seemed to me the reason I, that resonated with me, not not in terms of character, was that it, it felt to me that it was the first time he was fully taking responsibility for his uh, you, you know, for his drive as an artist and, and, and being collaborative in a way that was a lot more conscious. And I also think he knew he was down for the count. I think he knew that whatever he had done was done. And he, like either he was going to you know, live the rest of his life playing those fucking 15 songs you know, that were hits or he was going to take a chance. There was a vulnerability there of a guy who had like, emerged from a, a, an experimental life mm. and was going to take more responsibility over over what he saw as expression. Could I offer another path forward for that? Sure. Because you you suggested he would just play those same songs uh-huh. or, or whatever. I would say that what most artists do is continue to write new songs in the flavor and spirit of the ones that sold because they're trying to hold on right. desperately, sure. cling on to that yeah. success and that yeah. formula. Right. And what Bowie did and what I've think is so revolutionary about the Berlin thing is he blew the whole system up. Yeah. And he said, I'm gonna I, I'm not even gonna write songs anymore. Yeah. And I don't have a parallel for that. It's 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 is it's, it's it would be like James I don't know, maybe Christopher Nolan, a filmmaker yeah. who works with a huge ensemble. Sure. Saying, I'm going to go sh- make this other film with a camcorder by myself. And I, like, it's just, yeah. It was so stripped down. And one of the things that's so remarkable about it is when we think about pop artists and we think about entertainers, we think about actors, we think about, there are so few, when you have that success, who are willing to risk it and put it all on the line and blow it up. And Bowie wasn't a joke. And he could have very easily written eight more albums in this and they would have sold great and low sold great, but he did it on his terms. Yeah. And 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 then, you know, talking about Let's Dance, to me one of the revelations when I was going through all this stuff is so I we're I think the same age. There's close to I'm fifty seven. Fifty eight. You're a little younger. Than I you. just helped you out. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm a little. You, I'm 53. Right. So, so Scary Monsters was my introduction. Right. I was seventh grade and punkish enough to think the Let's Stands, you know, was a bit of a sellout. Um, and by the time you got to the one after that, it was like this. It's, I don't even oh, know what yeah, this is. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I was listening to interviews for the film, there was this great interview with Lisa Robinson. Um, great music journalist and uh and david it was pre let's dance yeah it's in the film and bowie talks about how he's tired of people perceiving him as icy and that he wants to be part of the mainstream and that he wants to produce warmer accents and he wants to be more excited and so imagine this mark 15 years into his career yeah where most artists are are like retiring or playing the the heritage circuit he actually says as a social experiment now i'd like to try pop stardom yeah it's like a movement like a picasso movement he's like i've tried this i've tried this i've tried this let's try this let's be a superstar and then becomes the biggest superstar in the world and then it becomes sort of a greek tragedy in the sense that he just 
he he stayed too long. You know, he enjoyed the trappings of success. Yeah, because that's where the turn, like, it's sort of interesting. When he's saying, like, I just love to be an entertainer. That was death. Uh, that was the death now. And it's funny, my my uh, distributor was trying to put um, a piece on um, TikTok, you know, like a quick little sure. soundbite. So they, they pulled that thing where he talks about planning for a feature. And I was like, yo, that is not supposed to be a, an inspirational right. idea. That was yeah. the moment Bowie was dead. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in the film, I superimpose, as he's saying that, a shot of him uh, um, looking at his self dead on the ground um i think the thing with the uh, amondo is he had to sort of get bankrupt if you will like he had like he he wouldn't i don't think he would have arrived at that station if he had skipped out of let stands quicker you know if he'd done three years there and said okay moving on to the next art thing i think that he had he wasn't gaining satisfaction through sure. his work and he ha- and, right, right. and it was from that point that he was like there's there's something that I'm missing I think I so I just I'm not an apologist but I will say this so when 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 I met David in 2007 yeah um we, we I I met with him to talk about a hybrid non-fiction film not this something something different yeah and uh we met at his office on 57th Street. We sit down, a small little space. There's four of us in the room. Yeah. And you know how these things usually go. You, you, you go in for a pitch, and it's a lot of, you know, people kissing ass or whatever. And, um, and I sit down, and David immediately launches into a, a pretty harsh critique of my most recent film. Which was? It was a movie called Chicago 10. The animated movie. Yeah. And I can't say he was entirely wrong in retrospect, but as you could- But did you say, hey, we take chances. (laughs) Look, you know, you- Well, this, by the way, uh, this is what I was freaking me out because he starts, uh, when I say he's ripping me, it felt very much like an assault, Uh you know, because just, and he wasn't, caustic and he was saying it in a very polite way he was yeah. like oh I, I didn't care for that at yeah. all yeah. it was a, and and he said have you seen the the weather underground by any chance and i said uh the pbs documentary the talking head one and he goes yes i much prefer that one and i i was like wow that's really interesting because that's very kind of traditional and i i, I would have thought you would have appreciated <laughs> some of what uh some of what i was doing and then his assistant who was in the room said what's your favorite bowie album uh, and i coming off of uh, a 10 minute sort of a t- i looked at david and said well to be totally honest david i can't say i've cared for anything you've done since <laughs> Let's dance. And David locked in on me and goes, touche. <laughs> Nobody has ever said, I mean, do you ever hear someone say touche in conversation? It's like you see it in movies. Well, I mean, one of the things that you really capture pretty thoroughly in this documentary is that he was a kind of a dork. And, you know, that you know, there there is this, sub, this underneath thing, underneath whatever the hell he's doing is this ridiculous mime and this ridiculous, you know, sort of posturing dance. It's like, well, it's I don't know if it's dark. What it what I dig about it is he's not the greatest dancer. He's not the greatest singer. He's not the greatest actor. He's certainly not the greatest mime. There you go. But he's putting himself out there and he's putting himself out there. 
you, yeah. the, the, you know, yeah, when yeah. the stones this started. Is the, this is the price David pays for taking a shot at you in 2007. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> let, let me finish that story, Mark. So, so, so that, you know, he said, she, you know, I said, well, quite, you know, I don't, I don't really appreciate anything yeah, yeah. since Let's Dance. I hadn't heard anything he had done since right? Let's Dance. I was you? just being a, yeah. a bit of a, you know, a dick. And uh, David passes. Yeah. In 2016, yeah, I receive the assignment to work on this film. For an assignment, whatever you want to call it. I Who gave myself. I did. Okay, I, okay, I, okay. I, 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 right, I hired right. myself to make the film. Yeah, and the so, time had come. So I start going through the catalog. I fucking love post ninety five Bowie. Uh huh. I know you. I, I know you were. No, no, no. The, I, 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 the Tin Machine. I played the shit out of the Tin Machine. Uh, like Heathens to me is like. A fu- speaks so much to where I am right now in my life. Really? Uh, yeah. I gotta give it a go. You gotta give it a go. Listen to Heathens, The Rays, you'll... you'll... I, look, the, the uh, day after and Dark Star I, I got into, I like Dark Star. I like the, the musicians that he did, he pulled together there. Uh, he, it was I, an inconsistent record for a death note, but you know, it was okay. I think what happened after Amon is we all, after the 80s, all of us who are fans pre-Let's Dance, I think stopped, a lot of people stopped paying attention. Yeah. He was at a m- much better place than he'd ever been. With, emotionally. Well, emotionally that's the other with thing Amon. Gonna, well, that's the other thing yeah. I was going to tell you is that, you know, that you know you, you dug into that Terry stuff, and I think it was important. And I think his struggle for, for you know, against and with mental illness was a real thing. Yeah. And, I, and I think that, you know, because of, you know, the nature of who he was and what he came from both, you know, mentally and emotionally that he was really incapable of letting anybody in, in a genuine way. So by the time Iman comes, you realize like, well, the, you know, he's finally, you know, figured out that, you know, life is beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and that, and I get that, yeah. you know, and then I appreciate it and it was touching and, and I, and it did, it, it, you know, in a less cynical way, kind of saved the character of Bowie for me in the film, mm. you, you know, yeah. uh, in, a, in a genuine way, because yeah. I believed it. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you made that, you, I could feel that. I like that footage, too, of him with the 12-string guitar, like, clearly the grown-up, kind of, you know, elder, uh, you know, Bowie, you know, you know, playing the hits in a way that he could, uh, you know, uh, find palatable. Yeah. What was that from? You know, that what, was from his 50th birthday party. Mm. Um, at Madison Square Garden. That was something. Yeah, it was. It was really, well, you know what's interesting is I'm sure you noticed that the, this was one of my sort of, again, I had never prior to giving myself the job, I had never read a book on David per se. Yeah. And um, David talks in the film about how alienation and isolation are a stock and trade, but he never feels alienated and isolated. And, um, uh, during the seventies, during the what I call the transit period, post Berlin, yeah. pre Let's Dance, I, I thought that the, you know, because we introduced the biographical components with his family, that you recognize that he's sort of what you alluded to, that he's damaged and that he's running away from something. Yeah, and I never thought of it like that, and he didn't present it that way himself. Yeah. You know, he presented as I'm on the move to gain experience. Right. Uh, right. Like it was never. Sure. We all rationalize. Ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I I did find that kind of um, illuminating a, a bit in, in, the, in that because he was so um, insightful about his 
goals and objectives. And I thought that was one area that he wasn't able to necessarily overtly connect to or or maybe not want to discuss sure. with the... Well, I think there is that element of him that is like kind of British. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is a, a lack of communication about emotions yeah. in all the games he's sort of playing. Yeah. Like, because, you know, he couldn't even admit the... Really, that you know, there's that one bit of uh, of uh, interview where you know he kind of mischaracterizes love and then kind of corrects himself later, right? <laughs> no, he says he says he can't love. It. No, well, I, it's a, it's a contradiction, I suppose. No, he says he's he loves love, but he cannot invite it into his life because, because he's too selfish. Too much time. Yeah, it takes yeah, yeah. too much time. That's pretty honest. It's. About the most honest thing I've ever heard. I mean, I wish I, if there were more, there would be less divorces in this town. I guess, but that, but th- that's also given whether or not you can, you know, express or feel love properly. You, you know, like yeah. what is the definition yeah. of that? You, yeah. you know, you you know, he clearly has some sort of like his the way he holds his ground on stage is very interesting, and it's not un, it's unlike anybody else. That there's an intensity and almost a, a looking far and away kind of thing. Mm that that is that is in and of itself kind of distant mm. you know he, he, he he's not needy up there no he, <laughs> no i mean especially if he saw the 95 uh nine inch nails tour well he had a piece of that right was it what was that what i the... had a little bit of hello space boy but that tour was where he went on stage and he only did three uh, hit songs and he did them in versions that you can't even tell what they are for the most part and was pretty much was playing. that Reeves on guitar yeah Reeves on guitar and, and you know the, by the end of those shows there were half empty arenas because people were there to see Nine Inch Nails who and, went on before him yeah oh, and wow. uh, and um, and he wasn't changing it up like oh. he could have sh- changed the set list yeah. halfway into that tour but like fuck you yeah it's kind of fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go back now because, like, I, I think we've we've kind of like explored that, you know, in terms of like, and I, I like the way that they, like, the one thing that that keep coming up that that I kept trying to wrap my brain around because of the nature of how he died and knowing he was going to die and not everyone else knowing he was going to die and kind of writing this record in uh, the last record, in, you know, in the shadow of his own death was kind of like great and you want to kind of put a bunch of you know magical thinking onto that and you want to you know bring Crowley back into it and symbols and everything else <laughs> there was some sort of through line about about life I, I don't know the, the, there was a way he was looking at death or moving towards it that that seemed to make it part of a continuum uh, not, not so much on a spiritual level, but but maybe that that I find provocative, and I, I'm not putting my finger on it right now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean the theme is transience through the whole film. It is transience, yeah. and and at the end, his last, um, the last thing he says is something along the lines of, um, "Does it matter? Like, why if 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 we're gonna fry out." why should we even invest in this thing? And he says, you do it just to do it, you know, just to carry on. But I mean, given given that this movie is all about, it's you're moving towards his death and that becomes sort of this nebulous event that you know is going to happen and the theme of transience and everything. I mean, did this, what did you like learn from, why, why were, it's all about death. So in uh uh, January fifth, two thousand seventeen. Yeah, I was um directing a pilot for Marvel, 
and I left this studio at uh, ABC and um, went to go moderate a screening at the Silent Film Theater and of what uh, of the movie Tower, an animated documentary, uh-huh. and um, I had a heart. I had a massive heart attack in and- your car. No, in the th- movie theater. Oh my god! And uh, fortunately, we were three minutes from Cedars. Um, I flatlined in the ER and was then put in a coma for a week. Uh, th- it was my son's birthday. Yeah, and my daughter's born on David's birthday, so I was in a coma on her birthday year to the day David died. And I didn't. I was forty-seven. And I didn't have a heart attack um, by accident. I had a heart attack because my life was totally out of control. Every, I, I smoked, I, I ate like shit, I didn't exercise, I was workaholic, worked seven yeah. days a week, yeah. totally stressed out, no balance in my life. Yeah. And, um, and when I, um, when I, I started to you know, recover, I began the research into Bowie. And so I had, and when you have an, an incident like this, right? I had three young, three preteen kids. Yeah. And you ask yourself, so if I die, what, what's the message? What did I, what, what was the purpose of my life? What did I, what's, and I was like, oh, my kids used to give me these Father's Day cards yeah. that would say, dad, thanks for showing me the great work ethic. Yeah, and like no irony. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, "What's the message of my life? That you work hard and you die at forty-seven? Right. Yeah. And it was from that vantage point that I started um, ingesting Bowie and wow. started so you... the Bowie research. So the idea of it being the film that it is, yeah. Uh, at that point, I'm just setting out to make this kind of entertaining, sort of David Bowie immersive experience. Yes. Um, but, but you needed answers. I, but th- th- but suddenly I realized <laughs> the through Bowie there would be this opportunity to provide a roadmap for my children, a sort of blueprint for how to live, you know, a balanced and uh-huh. fulfilled life. And that, and that's kind of the messaging of the film. Bowie wasn't gaining knowledge for nirvana for some there was some something that he was trying to drive towards it was just improving the day-to-day right um and that's the you know that to me is really wonderful sort of yeah lesson that we don't really you know going back to other music docs i i you don't go to a music doc for religion or for um to improve your own no, I, I, yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. But I'll, uh, yeah, you go. For, sadly, I think you, most people go for nostalgia. Uh, they go to have a a a, uh, a a illustrated Wikipedia of a sure, of a, yeah, yeah, which or, is or, fine, it, which is not a bad thing. But like, ultimately, if it's good, even if it's it's more kind of uh, sorted and and hacky, you, you know, you do see something you didn't see before. I, I, I while I was working on Bowie, which was, you know, it was like a seven year um, odyssey. I saw the Bee Gees film, the HBO Bee Gees doc, and I teared up. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Uh, not good in like art film sure. good, yeah, yeah. but it's really in- entertaining uh-huh. and it's really easy. Yeah. And I was like, kind of, why am I making it so difficult for myself 
What the, the Bee Gees film is the Bohemian Rhapsody when I sat down with the estate and said we can do one of two ways. Well, with I get this. it, but the reason that you have you do it the way you do it is because you have a formidable creative ego, and the only way <laughs> is that, that what it's called, and the only way that you know you can you know, really weigh these guys is, is to you know move through it. You know, with your own tone and creating a, you know, you're not, you know, whatever you're serving the Bowie thing is that you have feelings about Bowie and, and they me- mesh with your feelings and some of them are good or some of them are bad. Yeah. But if you honestly honor your own voice in this and your own point of view in this, you are as e- you are equal to Bowie in the presentation of Bowie. Well. In, in this instance on the film, there yes, where it's a collaboration. But it's, you're making choices about how to depict this guy's life. Uh, absolutely. No, no. It's, uh, it's a collaboration. I, I don't know why this isn't, I don't know why this is going to sound controversial, mm. but all nonfiction is autobiographical. I mean, this sounds, it's so trite. It's, it's going to be controversial to nine people. Yes. <laughs> we're not, the, we're not, there's not going to be a lot of clickbait on that one. <laughs> Headline. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I will say, as someone who creates biographies, yeah, the moment I was able to kind of recognize and acknowledge that yeah. was a moment where I was able to get a lot more out of the work, um, personally, and be more direct about what I'm exploring. What, that, what, wait, that must have started like I mean, because the OJ doc is you know is a big piece of work. Yeah, it's a, that's an important uh, hour. Yeah. Or, uh, or whatever in terms yeah. of, you know, what you were able to do. But also, like, look, I, maybe it's just what I'm seeing is that when you look at the other 30 docs or however many were done during that series about sports, you know, yours is clearly the, you know, fuck all you guys. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to. We're going to reel this. We're bringing it all in. I can do what all you guys did in just like a, a 15 minutes of mine, and I'm going to layer it all the way up to the fucking end of you know, but culture. It's, but it's just a question of if you've seen it before, why in the world are you doing it? Right. Like that, so, so in the That's 30 why... for 30, with the, the failure of 30 for 30 and is that it was, I thought you were going to have 30 totally different films that each film would look nothing like the rest. I'll tell you what happened, all respectfully to ESPN. They got my show. They said it's called June 17th, 1994. Yeah. And what did I what did I receive? The same thing I received on the kids stays in the picture, the same thing I receive on every film. I got a note from this from the network saying you need to go put talking head interviews in. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. You guys can take the film back. But if I put talking in interviews in, it's cookie cutter. Yeah. And the the art is that it's not that. And right. it's, it allows the audience to kind of bring their own interpretation. Fortunately, they backed off and let me do the film. But what I realized then is that it, it when you're getting network notes, it homogenizes everything. You know, they're giving the same notes. It's, it's all. Like, their... I, I'm, I've been Netflix documentaries. Yeah, I, I, I think they're so unbelievably entertaining. Yeah, um, and this will probably make sure I never work at Netflix again. But um, it's okay. I, I was. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. There's, there's a few other places. Yeah. Where, but I was on a, 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 doing a talk about the construction of Moon Age. Yeah. Um, in somewhere and this woman who i later found out was a top exec at netflix was in the audience yeah and she said you know it sounds like you don't like to collaborate 
and you know film is a collaborative medium and I said, well, I didn't really have the opportunity to collaborate. I didn't have the budget, and I had to make this film by myself. But you're and collaborating with the entire history of motion pictures and television That's because of the way you do it. Well, I think <laughs> what I took from yeah. it was that there is this, knowing that it was coming from a network executive yeah. who will never grant final cut to a filmmaker. Yeah, you're not collaborating with the people that know nothing and are operating out of fear uh, in terms of uh, making notes on your uh, your little art project, yeah, so that it looks like everything else on their their network. I mean, like, but this is exactly why these artists become uh, hacks. Is like they they the 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 mode the the delivery system is hackneyed. You, you know, like like we were talking about before. Maybe it's a stretch that you know the other the other trajectory of an artist like Bowie could have been to to make more records that sounded like his hit records. Is that like once they anybody thinks they get a system that makes some bread. You know they're going to lock everybody into it. That's where my deep, um, you know, going back to the Berlin, where I just don't know what the I don't have a parallel. I mean, I don't. Can you think? Like, maybe we could probably do with actors. You know, right. an actor who. Yeah, I guess who, who take who, chances, but, who, but but the chance of an actor just sort of like, well, you you might not get cast as this again. You ready for me to blow you away? Yeah, here's here's the actor who I think has most emulated Bowie. Yeah, Nick Cage for sure. Um, Nick would do three romantic comedies yeah. in a row, and you go, oh, he's a romantic comedy guy, no. and then do the most depraved, yeah, non box office like film where you go, no one's going to see this, and you are kind of totally your character is so depraved and vulgar and you're coming off of these yeah. Frank Capper romances yeah. what are you doing and then going and then going I'm going to flip the script again yeah. and those were to me very conscious deliberate decisions to both keep it interesting well, for did me. you see the new one <laughs> uh, the the unbearable I did yeah it's great the the self aware yeah, yeah 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 and I loved pig you know but you're oh, right pigs I, pigs pig is fucking masterpiece yeah. Yeah. but let's go let me just go back to kind of build this up and also like you know like to not, you know I don't know if we really characterized Moon Age Daydream you know in in terms of how visually spectacular it is but you know you're drawing from you know not just footage of Bowie and the music but you know these are you know quick cuts to you know all kinds of you know silent films documentary pieces like you know it's really kind of a uh, an old school kind of uh, you know punk rock film in some parts <laughs> where you know you're just you know you've got this incredible catalog of things that you know just go bang mm -hmm. and you know you, you don't you're not asking why as a, a viewer but you're sort of like okay you know this is all part of it you, you know what i mean yeah so you're kind of bringing that all in i can't even imagine you know what you know got you know if we were still doing things on film you would have been just in a room with thousands <laughs> of strips of film hanging like i don't even know what your desktop looked like in terms of what you were pulling from you know the interesting thing about that is when bowie was like a cultural passport you know i i i was introduced to burroughs when i was a teenager through bowie yeah and i was introduced to german expressionism you, you would and and it would be or he would make a reference to uh some artist or some like one word and that would trigger something so that so i wanted to incorporate some of that sort of Right, vocabulary into the film where you don't have to know the reference. If you right. get it, you get it. You know, sure. and if you don't, you don't. And it's worse. But it's not stuff. gratuitous. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's it's rooted in decisions that you made. Every image that is not David's in the film was something that he was inspired or influenced by throughout his life, oh. and that he referenced at some point. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 
but let's go back in terms of uh, like you know what drives you. We talked about the kid stays in the picture, and and I think that like y- y- you know your that that line resonating with you about subjective. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but and then the the Cobain doc. What was the kernel like? And I know there's other ones. And I and I really look. I I don't know if you listen to me talk to Jane Goodall, but we I talked. Did. Yeah, about yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah where I she's did. sort of like, well, he manipulated them. <laughs> uh, I very much so. Uh, <laughs> but June seventeenth, to me, you know, as a, a doc that you know was fully subjective and you had control over and was all you know based in and, and it all only used you know existing footage of yeah. the day yeah. and some stuff yeah. uh you know from oj's past but you know what you did by that by mashing those things together just what was happening on that day in sports uh in the world and uh and then you know all in the shadow of that bronco ultimately uh you know was really kind of a a, a, a an interesting document that that represents the end of of media culture as we know it. Yeah, I mean, it didn't set out that way. Yeah, it just set it out to make a Bruckheimer documentary. Yeah, like I was like, oh, we could do the car chase. Sure, like great. Yeah, but, but you but you made a choice that we're only going to use footage of the day. Yes, but we made the choice to only use footage of the day, and made a choice to make a film that would invite the audience to um to be able to uh, reflect on their own experiences, bring whatever they. My films, there's no forced narration, and yeah. I'm trying to invite the audience to participate. You know, through. But the, yeah, but I think like by 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 bringing all those things together, you yeah. know, by bringing you know sort of you know Arnold Palmer's you know last yeah. World Open, that was yeah, World yeah, yeah. Open, yeah. and then you know the Rangers winning yeah. the only, the only <laughs> yeah. time or the second time in history, and then the uh, the NBA playoffs, yeah. like all this was happening simultaneously, yeah. and then you know like this on un- this horrendous stories unfolding, yeah. you know with OJ, and then by the end of the day, no one gives a shit about any of that other yeah. stuff, yeah, and and the world changes forever, yeah, uh, and and just all that stuff with you know uh, people off mic, you know Costas, and you know it was it was it was back in a time where some of these broadcasters had some humility around things, and were were sort of embarrassed in moments where they didn't know how to report something or whether they should or you know, but they were being pushed, yeah. To, to follow the blood and now it's all like that yeah. but also this sort of strange you know these victories in sports and you're just even dealing with rangers fans it's just like <laughs> and i like that about the bowie movie too just the, this sort of disturbing uh uh lingering on on teenage fans who were, were just so it, it was only disturbing in 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 the vulnerability of it and how much they put in him but it's like anybody else but it shifts when you get to the 80s and suddenly sure. they become these like, they, you know, as yeah. David said, at one point in the 80s, he looked out and was like, are they here to see me or Phil Collins? Well, yeah, well, that, yeah, that's his own fucking fault. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there, there would be no reason at the t- that time where he wouldn't have been on stage with Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> you know, like, you can't pull that shit anymore, dude. You are Phil Collins. <laughs> You're sh- so true <laughs> but but like I, I i do like the the even all the stuff around the oj's thing but i just thought that that was you know how they're all sort of different because like i've seen you know I, you know i don't watch a shit ton of docs but i watch adam curtis i watch his stuff because i think that you, you know there is something that you guys are taking chances in in different ways but you're you're out there in, in you know in the chaos you know you're out there on the edge of things yeah making decisions that are are your own and provocative in a way that that hasn't been seen in the medium before 
I, I think, again, I'll meet someone, yeah. a filmmaker, and when I did um, Montage of Fact, I met this director who said, oh, you must have seen my film. Who was that? I don't want to say. I don't want to. Oh, okay. Say, and I said, "Why? Why would I have seen your your film?" Yeah. And they said, "Well, uh, it's considered one of the great rock docs of all time." <laughs> yeah, of course. And I was like, "Well, I, I, that's weird. Why would I, if I see something? Yeah. This may sound really punkish. Yeah. If I've seen someone do something, then I can't do it. Sure. So I rather not see sure. it. So yeah. I, 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 because that to me the enjoy and excitement is yeah, yeah. trying to, trying to be a pioneer and find oh, your, yeah. your find a different way. And and you know when I walked into when we were cutting montage of heck, I walked into the edit room, um, and and I, my editor was uh, not my editor. Yeah. I always think when someone says I always think of when Mick Jagger got punched by Charlie Watts for calling him my drummer. And uh, I walked in, he had his hands over his, he had a book in front of him and he had his hands over on his head. And I said, what's wrong, man? And he said, uh, he said, oh man, I'm reading about this chapter where Kurt, um, you know, uh, heard Nirvana yeah. on the radio for the first time. I'm just so bummed we don't have the footage. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, because it's like the first time. I was like, but we're, we're not making that film. Like, that's the most cliched scene <laughs> in like rock and roll history. Like, if we had that footage, I wouldn't even use it. It's like, what's that have to do with the story we're telling? And then, I, and then I said, you know, Kevin, that which we, when we don't have, when we have footage for something, it's almost like depressing because we just... You're, uh, there's no artistry to it. It's like, this is what happened. Yeah. What's really exciting is when you don't have the footage mm. and you have to like figure out how to create that moment or that, that experience. And that to me is where it gets, um, yeah, that's where it's, it's exciting. So I think that David's, where David became the, for me, the perfect subject was I have been trying to go into the deep end yeah. with all my films. Yeah. This one more so than anyone I've done, which really pushed me into into an area that um, where I'm not comfortable, which is non. It's not. It's not a rigorous narrative. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Because you do a lot of time travel. But, yeah. But but also you know you can sort of justify that. It's like you know it's a cut up trip, man. You know. Well, it's a film that in again from where we started yeah. is is intending to reconstruct the Bowie experience, which is you know, the enigma, the mystery, the intimate, the sublime, and create an experience that presents that. Um Right. You know, and the film is cut up and there influence there there are references flying left and right, and it's all performance. You it doesn't strip away the persona yeah, of but, David but, Jones but, or David Bones, but, but that's but why we love Bowie. It's like right, but yeah. but you but the thing that's beautiful about it, you know because he mentions chaos all the time. Yeah, that the there's time, this yeah. idea, yeah. you know that you know we you know that that it's there yeah. and that to to deny it is crazy. Yeah. And also he mentions this idea about you know all these different things that are happening in every moment around you. You're just choosing you know whatever your little reality is at that moment. But it, th there's all this other stuff coming up. But but ultimately you know what the bed or the the, the sort of 
through line, whatever intellectual through lines or spiritual through lines there are, is that you have the music and that, you know, you <laughs> will, you know, you run, you know, yeah. almost loops at yeah. times. So there's never a quiet moment. There's always some piece of Bowie music yeah. kind of moving through all of this. So no matter what the fuck happens or what the time frame is, the continuity is the magic, which is the fucking music. It's a jukebox musical with a rich subtext. Well, no, but like, <laughs> no, but like, but music is fucking magic. Yeah. And, and, and there, there's very few artists, you know, I was talking about this with my producer that like, as I get older, you know, I will, you know, there are bands that I will go back to. The Stones are one of them and, you know, that Beatles doc. And I'm not even that old, but that, I couldn't not watch that Beatles doc. Mm-hmm. And it didn't like, you know, make, it, of course it made me cry and freak out. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, oh my God, this is crazy. They're just a dumb band. <laughs> they, who, you can't explain the magic. Who the fuck can explain that? Yeah. But that that is what, that is what makes these guys you know, bigger than life that makes them, you know, forever mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm, I don't feel this way about Bob Seger, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if you're going to like take a bunch of Bowie songs, you know, you got pretty, you know, guaranteed magic. Well, that was, so the Bowie film started off yeah. as a series of 15 films. That was a, a project I created called the IMAX music experience. And the idea was that there would be the 15 biggest heritage and contemporary artists of all time. And I would create a space in an IMAX theater for just that. So you can just go listen, yeah. see, experience, and not learn. Um, well, this is going to be an IMAX thing, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's an IMAX uh, exclusive for the first week. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But uh but oh but getting back to like, you know, other people's work. I mean, I only bring up Adam, Adam Curtis because, you know, I watch his stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I haven't seen a lot of it, but there, you know, that hypernormalization and the uh, uh and the century of self and stuff is that you know, he's barking up a different tree, but the risk he's taking by, you know, mashing together stuff to have the audience, you know, you know, go on these journeys of thought that are much more disturbing. I mean, it's not, this is not a celebration of life. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't leave an Adam Curtis film with anything other than like, oh, we're so fucked. It's like it's fucking over, dude. But 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 you know, there is uh, you know, I just I just bring him up as another documentary artist. Yeah. You know, who's doing you know exciting stuff. Yeah. But you've never watched an Adam Curtis. Movie. No, I have, oh, and I oh. think he's brilliant. He's so much, uh, far more intelligent uh, than I am. You're doing uh, different things. We're doing different things. I think I work more emotion. I think yeah, yeah, I'm working yeah. on a more. Emotional. I'm, I'm glad you. You know, you've got to figure it out for yourself how you're different. Cause, <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a tough day for you. <laughs> it must have that that day must have started with fuck. God damn it. Oh, you're fine. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. But I look, you you've done great work in and you know, but I but I, I do want to come back to like, you know, in terms of people watching the other stuff too. That like to go find that you know that uh the OJ one uh June 17, 1994 cuz you can it's just right there on Hulu. And the Kurt Cobain one's on on HBO Max, yeah, and yeah. it's easy to watch. Yeah. But like you know, you can definitely like I can see you striving in that that Kurt Cobain one with some of that the extra you know, the stuff outside of the narrative, you know, the visual stuff, and it has to do with music, right? Uh, well, I'll t- here's what montage was for me. Yeah. It was about our generation. Mm. It was about the latchkey kid generation. It was very specific to. And and hopefully this is my entry point, and then hopefully it transcends beyond this. Yeah, 
is kids whose parents were married between 61 and 70. It's a very right. Right. macro moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it were the, the parents who got married because they wanted to fuck. My parents, your parents. My parents. Yeah. They, they wanted to have sex, so you had to get married when you were 18. And then the 60s happened. And suddenly they're seeing everyone else having fun and fucking. Right, right. And then they're like, well, I want to do this too. It's like when Kurt's mom said, is this it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Is this yeah. all there is? There's got to be something more for me. I'm like, right. lady, you got a fucking kid. Yeah. Like that, the time to have arrived there has passed. Yeah. Like when you have a kid, yeah. you, 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 you kind of have to move beyond that. But, they, but, you're, but that's not on her. It was generational. It was generational. Sure. It was generational. Yeah. But uh, so that was my entry point and Kurt's, Issues with shame yeah. were, I had a, um, a, a really serious uh, speech impediment. I couldn't speak until I was five and I was in therapy until I was 16. And my childhood, um, really until I was probably in my teens, yeah. were kids coming up to me on the school ground going, are you retarded? <laughs> I mean, that was, I, 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 you know, that was to my face. You know, like, and standing, like looking for an, like, no, right. I'm not retarded, I'm yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, it was, yeah, so I, I, hard to stay strong. I, yeah, it was. Well, you do what you need to do, but um, but there is uh some sensitive. You know, I have some sure some of those. Well, we all do, and I think you know. Well, yeah, I mean, right, and and you know, I, I like I remembered seeing it the first time, but I didn't remember the whole movie until I watched it again. But I do remember the animated story of him, you know, needing to get his first sexual experience out of the way and returning to the house of the mentally ill person now did you do you remember did you see it recently i just watched it most of it i'm almost done I, we watched most of it okay. what what do you what did you think that that was a store a short fictional store a piece of art that kirk created or did you feel that he was telling that as a like to an interviewer like it was a true story Oh, I felt like um, I didn't sense that there was an interviewer at the end of it, but I sensed he was, you know, telling a story about himself. Yeah. Because there are details of it that are not fictional, that can't be really manufactured. What was interesting, that story became really controversial. Uh huh. And um, it was, it was, there was a Buzz Osborne on the Melvin, from yeah. the Melvins yeah. came out and blasted the film because of it and said, oh, that story's bullshit. If it had happened, I would have known. And I was like, I remember being really confused because I was like, I, I thought it was really obvious that that was a short fictional story that he wrote and then recorded because of his cadence. Uh -huh. He's not talking to someone. He's using voices yeah, and yeah. he's, he's reading a story right and it's a piece of short fiction so it's based on things i have an idea of what it was based on uh -huh. it's no different than a cobain song it's you know so you're saying oh, it's not a real story oh i i animated it in part to make it very clear that it's not factual and in fact there's a a little i mean it's very subtle but there's a part at the end of that story where kurt said i lay down on the railroad tracks put two bricks on me and waited for the train to come right as he's saying that you don't see that you see kurt sitting on uh, up on the deck on the thing watching the train go by very deliberately uh, yeah to distance but his why, narration why do you think it's a fictional story i think like 
any co I don't think of it any different than Cobain's music. I think that okay. you know it has truths. That's why it's it's fantastic. It's mm. it's filled with truths. Are they historical truths? Did these things really happen? Did he sleep with that as he calls a retarded girl? Is that a metaphor for something else? Right? Like it's not. It's not. I right. I believe it's it, you know. And I I that story. What was really interesting was he wrote it in his journal. Yeah. And then he recorded it. Yeah. And it was recorded on a tape he did with a lot of other um, poems and short yeah. stories. Okay. Um, that one had a lot of what appeared to be biographical components. Yeah. Um, but there was some stuff mixed in there as well that weren't sure. necessarily directly biographical. Um, so at the beginning of Montage of Heck, I said this film is going to be told using Kurt's art. You know, yeah. both his music, short stories, blah, blah, blah. So to me, it was not intended to be like anything factual. It's it's better than factual. It's gives you like a, a direct shot into his brain. One way or the other. It's art. Okay. You know, and, yeah, I and, mean, and I... that, that the story of Montage was we're going to tell a biography a, through a third person autobiography and allow the artist's art to tell the story where I got trapped in that is I needed context and I, I didn't have the perspective through Kurt's own art. So I needed to do interviews to help contextualize Kurt's space within the film. Huh? Well, yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder though, I mean, what would it look like if you didn't do the interviews? Oh, it would have uh, it would have been a montage of heck. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you get to like you know wh where do you fit this uh, this uh, this sweet uh, kind of like um, sad Jane Goodall doc into how did that become part of your sad. oeuvre? Did you just say sad Jane Goodall? I, oh no, sad in the sense that like you know having talked to her, uh, you, know, you know having seen that. Yeah the the sort of youth and the and the sort of earnestness and the excitement and 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 then to talk to her in relation to it, about what's happening now it's yeah oh, yeah yeah it's devastating yeah um Nacho saw montage of heck and someone there they called me up yeah and said, who saw it Nat who's that national I'm sorry National Geographic oh, oh Nacho yeah. okay got it uh. This is the true story of that film. So supposedly the Murdochs, when they still own National, National Geographic, yeah. wanted to do a rebranding. At the, that point in 2014, it had become a pretty dodgy reality, unscripted series. And yeah. they kind of lost their identity a bit. And so, Nat Geo did. Yeah, okay. yeah. So there was this sort of directive to go back and sort of rebrand, you know, as this sort of adventurer, explorer's mm. place. Jane's their, you know, their, yeah. their iconic story. I think I might have asked them since then, but I get a call from my agent said National Geographic wants to talk to you about Jane Goodall. Yeah, I said what? Uh -huh. I, said, I, 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 I don't know anything about science. Uh, haven't I seen that film a million times? Um, I, I have no interest. I mean, yeah. like the, the first, and I was like, this is fucking weird. Why would they call the guy who did Montage of Heck? Yeah, to do. So I do a call with them, and uh, all it takes is one person. You know, over there <laughs> yeah, that liked the movie. We did. This is true. Yeah. I did a very quick call. Yeah, and uh, my agent calls me back and says they want to do another call. And I said I don't want to do another call unless they agree to final cut. Uh huh. I don't want to waste anyone's time. Yeah. And they agreed to final cut, which I thought was totally insane. If they're going to brand their whole 
if they want to use this to brand the network and yeah. they're going to give me final cut, I just did montage of heck. Like I said, we weren't selling any t-shirts, you know uh -huh. what I mean? Um, but anyway, they did. And uh, what I was interested in in Jane was, um, and again, I, all these things become very self-reflective. I had spent most of my life trying to figure out how to create a balance between work and being, a, between my my passion for work and my family. Yeah. That's what Jane was about. Right. How do you, how do you how do you find that balance in life and, um, you know, particularly especially for because she had you know several families. Yeah, her, her family and then the monkeys. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. true. And well, also as a woman in that time, where it was expected that she would be the one to stay home with the kid, uh, and Hugo would be the one to go out right, with those right. adventures. We did a. Uh, I remember I was at a screening um, at the ArcLight for that film, and. Um, and uh, the moderator made a comment about how much he hated Jane when she dropped off um, her son to go to school yeah. in England. Yeah. And all these women in the audience were going, Sss! and he didn't get it. Yeah. And he was like, what, what? She's fucking, that was fucked up. She yeah. dropped her kid off, he was six. Yeah. And I had to look at him, I was like, dude, you're not saying that about the dad. Yeah, like, right, you know, right, right, like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah. We all gotta learn. Yeah. There's a learning curve on this. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the re respecting and uh, empathizing for women learning curve it's a it's a steep one for dudes. But Jane was Jane was also like that was an opportunity to a real life, um, very. T I mean, like that footage was yeah. so uh, yeah, it's all there. Huh? Oh my god, it was so incredible, uh, beautiful, and uh, and sh yeah, that was that. So I almost said no. Yeah, I basically said no, and then I finally caved. And the day they sent me the hundred and whatever hours of raw footage and I put it on, <laughs> I walked out of my office and I looked at my sis and was like, can you believe I almost turned this down? Yeah. This is like the greatest film I have ever seen. Like we will never have an archive this pristine and this yeah. like, I mean, you're watching something that's never gonna happen again. Yeah. Like we can't play with chimps in the wild. That's never happening. Yeah. So it's like as fucked up as it was. And there's a, you know, obviously you're watching, you're like, we know better now. Obviously, <laughs> you're like, wait, what? You're giving them bananas? Like, what do you? you yeah, know? yeah. But I mean, it's just like Adam and Eve in the junk. Yeah. I mean, it's it's insane. It was it, great. Yeah. 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 So that was exciting. It was really exciting. Yeah. What's the next thing you got going? You gonna sell this movie? Uh, no, no. This, this. Oh, you mean like this? Selling it? Like oh, yeah, talking yeah. to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know yet. I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Take a break. No, no. Just uh, yeah. Sort of. I just finished another one recently, so. What? I can't. Oh. Yeah. And uh, what, do you read books? What do you do? Oh, for fun? Yeah. Uh, I, 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 my favorite thing is to just like look at clouds. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just in your house, outside? Uh, we have a we have a house um, on the island in Hawaii. Oh, yeah? Which one? Big Island. Oh, yeah? Uh, up near Waipio Valley. Yeah. Um, How much time do you spend there? As much as humanly possible. So I cut Bowie there. And uh, for for big chunk of it, I cut a lot of Jane there. Yeah. Um. And uh, honestly, that's where I I I unplug. Yeah. And it's where the trade winds meet. You know, we're on the, the uh -huh. north coast. And yeah. So literally, there's no greater spectacle than watching the clouds kind of form huh. above your head. Yeah, I go to Kauai. I used to go more. I can't afford Kauai, so I'm in the Big Island. I I mean, I don't own a house there. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> You know, but I, I don't, I'm, I can't live there. I mean, like, you know, if I, you know, 11 days is it. That's what everyone told me that I was going to get bored 
and I we've been there seven or eight years. And but I think on the Big Island, there's more to do. Like you know, Kauai is it. You know, that's it. You got a farmers market, you got two restaurants, and then you hike. Yeah, we don't even have that. I mean, we're thirty minutes from a restaurant, so I just oh. I stay yeah. put. Yeah. yeah, but you like it. I love it. All right. Yeah. And you you bring the you got a big family, right? I have a wife who is a huge fan of yours. I mean, oh, yeah? Like, yeah, she wanted to be on the She wanted to come? She well, she wanted to be outside. She oh. thought it would be a Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's very excited. She's uh, a filmmaker, right? She's a filmmaker, Deborah Eisenstadt. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um and we have three kids. And yeah. They don't really like going there at their teenagers, so it's uh, oh, it's, like it's like prison kind of, isolation. Yeah, well, they're on their you know it's sort of they're on their phones. Like yeah, yeah. it, it doesn't really make sense for anyone. Yeah, how's that? How's that play for you? Like, you know, what do you, I mean? How do you adjust to that? I guess we all are, but like when I see teenagers, like when I just I can't. It's still a weird shift for me to just watch everybody just looking at that thing in their hand, and it's you got to remember that that's their language yeah. that's their norm and all we're doing is being like our parents looking at us going like what these crazy fucking kids I, so I, I sadly I, most of us are going like I, tell, tell me how to do it <laughs> yeah. so i went from yeah. fighting it yeah. and thinking like this is just you know we're out you know you're in the most beautiful place on earth yeah and you're on your phone like you know this yeah is completely fucked up to just kind of like that's how I see it, and you know the way my dad used to want to listen to old time. Now I did like listening to the old time radio shows with my dad, yeah. but it was totally anachronistic at the time he was doing it. For but me. he was like, "Hey, let's sit in the living room and listen to, uh, you know, the Lone Ranger." And it was like, "Dad, can we watch television?" Sure, but yeah. it, it was also not a you know. I mean, like the how this takes over your brain. It's very different than analog. You, you know, like, you know, if you're sitting in a living room with your dad listening to a music you don't like, there's a million other things you could be doing in your head, in yeah. the room. But once you fucking lock into this thing, it's all of you. All I'm saying is imagine no, what this generation is going to be saying to their kids because there's going to be a whole nother. They're going to say, sorry, but uh, <laughs> this, the world is ending. <laughs> sorry, there's nothing anymore. <laughs> Sorry for all the the, the strange uh, smoking <laughs> ruins everywhere and <laughs> Yeah, we people used to be able to live west of Utah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too cynical. Oh yeah, you had said earlier yeah. in their interview that you had um that that the film had changed ch- challenged your understanding or impression of Bowie. Well, it challenged it in the sense that you know whatever my understanding was, and I remember this when he died as well. You know that you, you know my experience of Bowie, you, you know his impact on me, what was kind of you know uh, uh, mythic, and it was it was shallow in a way. You know, like you know the fact that I I, I did lose touch with him. Uh, you know, post Let's Dance, I didn't know a lot of that stuff. I'd, I'd never been, you know, seen any of the footage that you see. I didn't care anymore. Yeah. But how I held him in my heart and my mind was specific, and 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was in awe, and 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 had him. He was part of me in a very specific way. So the way it changed, like I, I actually leaned into my girlfriend. I said, at some point during the movie, I said, "This is going to make me hate him." If I if I keep watching, it's gonna make me hate him because of what you talked about. Because of you know acknowledging that almost everything that he presented, there was a painful vulnerability to it, and and the risks that he took, much of the time, uh, exposed a, a an uncomfortable vulnerability that I don't know that I noticed. 
in the Bowie that I had in my mind. Why would that make you hate him? Though? Not hate him. It, it just it, it wouldn't. I was being facetious, but it would just humanize him to the point where I would have a hard time, you know, keeping him where I kept him. But that happens with everybody. I talk to people, yeah. but there was a there was a point where you you know. And, and it happened when I made the movie about Bowie, when I had to go do the research to say, to think, like, he couldn't have looked this ridiculous. Not David Bowie, but there was a time where he really did mime for everybody. Yeah. And it was, it was ridiculous. The, 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 but, but the way you frame it is that, like, there's an incredible vulnerability in that. I'm like, okay, <laughs> but, but it's embarrassing. So I think what my thing is, is, like, I have a tremendous fear of embarrassment. That's where my shame is in me. Yeah. My, I had an embarrassing mother, and I had, you know, and I, you know, and the way I overcome it is by putting myself, and I became a comedian. Yeah. As Harry Shearer says, you, you, you do comedy to try to control why people laugh at you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there, there, there's that vulnerability, which makes me uncomfortable. And, you know, I think seeing that in Bowie and seeing that he really was, not, uh, an ill-defined personality as himself in a way, and that all he was was this sort of risk-taking artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, I think it just made me uncomfortable. So, but I can appreciate it. I, I think what it did was made me realize that, like, a, a lot of the vulnerability, like when you when you show those segments of him in the Elf Man, I'm like, oh my god. I was always under the belief that this was some amazing uh, uh, effort in acting. And, 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 but you look at those scripts, I'm like, this is ridiculous. I would feel terrible. You know, but, where he's like, I have a home. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know. Okay. This is how much I drink the Kool-Aid. Deborah, my wife, came yeah. in. And she, who was an actress on Broadway. Yeah. And, um, and uh, she, she saw this scene from The Elephant Man. Yeah. And she goes, you got to cut this. <laughs> And I, and I was so deep in. I was like, "What are you talking about?" And she goes, "His acting. You got to You got to You got to You got to cut this." Yeah. And I was like, "I had no idea." I was like, "The vulnerability, like what he's saying. It's 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 like it's not yeah. it's not John Merrick. It's him, and it's yeah. it's it fits." And again, this is what we said earlier. Uh, it's not about being a virtuoso. So even if you think, I don't think David's the greatest actor. No, I get. It. I just here's what's here's why that moment is so awe-inspiring. Again, he's the biggest star in the world doing this thing. Doing this Taking going this on to do the Elephant Man, which he's not really trained to do. Yeah. And he's doing it with no prosthetics yeah. and he's yeah. naked on stage. Yeah. And like and one of the things that I never got about Bowie until I started making this film is the how deliberate his choice and characters were mm. in relation to his own sort of exploration. Like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Mm. I'll never watch that film and not think of his brother. Yeah. It's so obvious. Yeah. I just didn't know the, really the story of the brother. Now I see the film. I'm like, oh, it's about a that's a, the, 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 the character who's embarrassed by his brother and is like, you know, it stands. Right. I mean, it's so. And you, then when yeah. you see Bowie act on it now, yeah. it's like. Um, yeah. See, like you got in very deep and you're willing to, you know, to, to see it in a very empathetic way and also in a very sort of like respectful way in terms of uh, an artist taking chances you know, even failing. But the thing is, is that like, you know, ultimately outside of the arc of his career, uh, I, I don't know that anyone sees those things as failures. So uh, they were always sort of presented as like, you know, this guy's, you know, doing it. Yeah. Uh, so I think for me, you know, to get back to the shift in, in my understanding of him, it's like just that little bit of, be- like, I always thought like, you know, Bowie nailed the elephant man. And like, yeah. you know, you had this like, like one minute piece and I'm like he did not nail it (laughs) good talking to you man
Thanks, Mark. There you go. That was engaged. I've been I've been engaging lately. Again, the movie Moon Age Daydream, which is totally worth seeing, opens in theaters this Friday, September 16th, including in IMAX theaters. And uh, let's continue this in a second. Can you hang out? Can you hang out? Hang out. Okay, so look, on Thursday, we've got Bradley Whitford back on the show. He was on episode 909 back in 2018 after all the success of Get Out. And you can go back and listen to that one before Thursday if you want. Ever since then, he's been saying he would love to come back on. So he did for nothing in particular, just to hash it out. And it was it was we hashed it. We, we definitely we definitely uh, got into some shit. And uh, also, here's a little heads up. There will be new cat mugs available from Brian Jones on Thursday. I'll mention it again at the beginning of Thursday's show. But those mugs tend to sell out very quickly. So if you want to get a head start, you can bookmark the page, brianrjones.com slash shop, and go there at noon Eastern on Thursday. And remember, LA, you just, you just, just, it's going to be desert again. That's all. Just you know, dig up everything that uses water and figure out where you want your, um, your state gauge to be uh, in the future. Just go, it's just, we're, we're, we're going back to the desert. It's, it's going back to the way it used to be. We're going primitive, people. So look, as I said, tomorrow night at Luna Lounge, not, oh my God, wow, at Largo, Largo at the Coronet here in LA with some music and comedy, Hannah Einbinder will join us, me and Jimmy Vivino and uh, uh, Brandon Schwartzel and uh, Ned Brower. Next week, I'm in Tucson, Arizona at the Rialto Theater on September 16th. Phoenix, Arizona at Stand Up Live on September 17th. Boulder, Colorado at the Boulder Theater on September 22nd. Fort Collins, Colorado at the Lincoln Center on September 23rd. And Toronto, Ontario at the Queen Elizabeth Theater on September 30th and October 1st. Then I'm in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater on October 6th. And Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at the Sunset Center October 7th. That will be an intimate show, just me and the four people that uh, bought tickets for that. I'll be in London, England at the Bloomsbury Theater Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. I believe both those shows are sold out. We may add a show. I may be doing a live WTF there. And I'll be in Dublin, Ireland at Vicker Street, Wednesday, October 26th. I have dates in November and December in Oklahoma City, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Eugene, Oregon, Bend, Oregon, Asheville, North Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee. And my HBO taping at Town Hall in New York City is on Thursday, December 8th. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all your dates and ticket info. Now let's, uh, I'll play you out.
Boomer lives. Monkey in the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Uh-huh. 